Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people. And the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear nor be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Father in heaven, bless our thoughts and our meditation on this passage. Lord, may your word come to life in our hearts. May you encourage our faith. Lord, give us courage and vision and hope for this new year. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. How far back in your life can you remember? I've thought about this. I can picture looking from my playpen, watching the Major League Baseball game of the week, listening to Dizzy Dean and Pee Wee Reese call the action. That was in the early 1960s. But my lifespan only takes me back 56 years. Perhaps some of you can think back further. Maybe you voted for Eisenhower, or you have a few memories of World War II. But what if you could think back 256 years? Imagine living in the American colonies while people debated and prepared for a revolution against Britain. How about a thousand years ago? The Chinese, they used gunpowder in battle for the first time. The Mayan civilization began to collapse. The Vikings conquered northern France. Can you imagine what life would have been, been like in eras and in places past? Think back, if you can, still further, 3,000 years. And watch King David lead Israel's troops into battle with the Philistines. Go back even further. Can you imagine the Tower of Babel or the flood of Noah's day? Or even Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Oh, Adam, please don't bite that apple. Our wives will be going to the mall for new clothes for years and years to come. <laughs> Can you stretch your senses beyond even Adam and Eve in the garden to the very dawning of time? to the first infusion of energy into empty space and lifeless matter. When God spoke, let there be light, and there was. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, the Bible begins, but God did it. We're told, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Close your eyes and try to imagine just a few seconds before that opening scene. What do you see? I'll tell you who was there. Jesus was the first. And how far into the future can you imagine? Oh, if the Lord tarries, how many technological marvels await us? How will demographics and politics change us? What will happen to America? Will it cost us to follow Christ in the days ahead? What kind of world will our children inherit as Christians, we're looking for Jesus. He's promised to return for us. Yes, no man knows the day or the hour, but we hope it's soon. 
After Jesus comes, dark days await this planet. Severe, earth-shaking judgments will rain down on earth. The Bible then predicts a coming kingdom. God's promise to David will finally be fulfilled. His descendant, Jesus the Messiah, reigns forever. Redemption at last. Oh, we can think ahead 100 years, maybe 200 years. Our knees start knocking at those seven years of tribulation. Jesus will reign a thousand years. We can rejoice in that. But can we see still further? Can we envision a time or a day when time actually melts into eternity? After all decisions have been made, all destinies decided, when time will be peeled back and God's eternal state will be unveiled You see, the final frame in the Bible's prophetic picture is what it calls a new heaven and a new earth. But I'll tell you who will be its king. Jesus is the last. So put it together. Jesus is the first. And Jesus is the last. Before time began, he was. After time expires, he'll be. You know, the prophet Micah, he wrote around 740 B.C. And Micah saw the baby of Bethlehem in this very light. He starts by predicting Messiah's birthplace. In chapter 5, verse 2 of his prophecy, he writes, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. Of the numerous villages that dotted the Judean countryside, God picked Bethlehem, tiny, obscure. This would be the birthplace for his chosen king. Jesus was born off the beaten path in a humble spot. Yet what's most revealing about Micah's prophecy is that Bethlehem is not the babe's beginning. For he writes, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. That word everlasting, it means from eternity on. Some folks translate it beyond the vanishing point. As we tried to do earlier, the idea is to go in your mind, either backwards or forwards, as far as you can. 5,000 years, 5 billion years, 50 trillion quintillion years. And there's Jesus As Psalm 90 verse 2 put it, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. The eternal God and the baby of Bethlehem are one and the same. The ancient of days became a child of time. Jesus is God. He is the first and he is the last. Which leads us to our text this morning. Isaiah 44 was written to a people who were trying to be faithful to their God while swimming in a sea of polytheism and idolatry. And Isaiah, he throws them this lifeline. Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is the one true God. He tells them, besides me, there is no God. There is no God before him. There is no God after him. The God of Israel is the one and only true God. And thus he declares, I am the first and I am the last. And yet Isaiah 44 verse 6 actually poses for us a quandary. For if you're first, then there's only one of you. 
By definition, if there are two firsts, then one of the firsts isn't first. And if you're last, you're the only one who can be last. For if you have two lasts, then neither of the lasts is really last. You following me? And yet Isaiah 44 insists here that there are two firsts and there are two lasts. Read it carefully. Verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. The Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, are both given the title Lord. Both lords speak in unison and claim to be exclusively divine. They say, beside me, there is no God. Both occupy the universal first position and the universal last position. Like I say, Isaiah 44 verse 6 contains a real dilemma. But remember, tucked away in the prophecy of Isaiah are portraits of Jesus. And if we dig deep, we can mine some priceless treasures. And here is a portrait that we might not have recognized if it weren't for the New Testament. Four times in the last book of your Bible, the revelation of Jesus, our Lord, is referred to by the same terminology we find here in Isaiah 44. He is called the first and the last. You see here, the New Testament solves the Old Testament riddle. The Bible does teach that there is only one first and only one last, but it insists that the one consists of two. Israel's God is the Redeemer of the church. Jesus and Yahweh are one. This coming October, we're going to be touring in the footsteps of Paul and John. And one of our destinations will be the Mediterranean Isle of Patmos. John had been sentenced by the emperor Domitian to hard labor on this oversized rock. He tells us in Revelation 1 that it was on the Lord's day that he heard a voice behind him, something like a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. He turned around and he saw one like the Son of Man. It was Jesus clothed in all his glory. He wore a golden band and was as white as snow. There was fire in his eyes, stars in his hand, a sword protruding from his mouth. He shined like the sun. John tells us, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. He was totally overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus. John continues, but he laid his right hand on me. And guess what he said? Do not be afraid. I am the first and I am the last. And that name was meant to bring comfort. Remember, John had not seen his Lord, his Jesus, for half a century. Not since he had ascended to heaven. During his time with Jesus, John had learned so much. The love of Jesus had won his heart. The humility and service and sacrifice he had seen in his Lord had shown John a better way. But believers were now suffering. The church had been waiting. What's happened to Jesus? Has his time away caused his glory to fade? Has it caused his purposes to fail? And the revelation of Jesus answers these questions with a resounding no. 
Jesus is the first and he is the last. And no matter how long a wait there is in between, nothing about Jesus will diminish. He is the only faithful God. What Jesus starts, he finishes. The kingdom he has begun in our hearts, he will establish on earth. All the world will bow before him. Jesus is the first and he will be the last. And this name assures John, it comforts him that nothing he's trusted in will fail. That Jesus is as sovereign now in heaven as he was on the Galilee the day he calmed the sea. He is the first, the originator, but he is also the last, the culminator. All his promises he brings to pass. And you too, my friend, can rest in the promises of Jesus. You see, every promise involves a weight. Promises are like seeds. Sown in one season, they're reaped in another. The giving and the receiving of a promise is always separated by an in-between time, sort of an in-the-meantime. And this is where you and I insert trust and faith. Believe in His name, the first and the last. Don't just bet on Jesus before the race. Cheer for Him at the finish line. Count on Him to be faithful to His word. Wait for His promise. All He asks of us is faith. But faith is what He asks. He laid His hand on John to give him assurance. And He lays His hand on us this morning. The next time this name appears is in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. Jesus here is addressing the persecuted church of Smyrna when he introduces himself. These things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Again, he's speaking to believers threatened by prison, by poverty, by suffering, even by death. And yet he tells them he has already conquered the worst that could happen to them. He's the one who was dead and came to life. Jesus assures their trembling hearts. He was there when they first said yes to him, to follow him. And he'll be there when they take their last breath. He is their first and their last. And when your world is coming unhinged, when everything around you is in turmoil, when you question your past and you fear for your future, remember Jesus is first in line to help you. And he'll be the last by your side when everyone else forsakes you. He is your first and your last. Jesus has already conquered the very worst that will ever happen to you. And then the last time this name is mentioned in the Revelation is in the final chapter. Realize this is one of the last portraits of himself that Jesus leaves to his church. These are the words he wants impressed upon us. See, here is how Jesus wants to be thought of. I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And there it is again, the first and the last. Alpha was the first letter in the Greek alphabet. And Omega was the last letter. To say Alpha and Omega is like us saying He is the A to Z. The implication is that Jesus is not only the beginning and the end, but He is also the everything in between. 
All that we do as believers, as Christians, should be done with Jesus in mind. Is He your first thought? Do you ponder, how would Jesus have done this thing? What would be His concern? We should filter everything through His story. And our final thought should also be about Jesus. What's the end result? Is He our ultimate aim? We should do it for His glory. See, here's my challenge to you on this first Sunday in a new year. In everything we do, we should start with His story and we should shoot for His glory. We should let Jesus be our first and our last. Reminds me of a middle-aged woman. She had this incurable disease. She checked into the hospital for some tests. The doctor confirmed the prognosis. Her days were numbered. One night, though, she had a vision, a vision from her guardian angel. He told her that she would live 30 more years. Oh, she was so excited. She woke up the next morning. She thought, well, if I'm going to live for three more decades, I should do it in style. And so before she left the hospital, she ordered a facelift and some liposuction and a little tummy tuck. Well, when the woman's stay in the hospital was over, she was walking out to her car. When suddenly... A truck blindsides her, hits her. She dies instantly, kills her on the spot. Well, when she woke up in heaven, she went to look for her guardian angel. He, she was really mad. She grabbed him. She told him, she said, you told me I'd live 30 more years. He looked at her and he said, yeah, but I didn't recognize you. <laughs> I mean, the gal had changed so much, her angel didn't realize it was her. And I'm afraid that there are Christians who have the same problem with Jesus. Hey, he is no longer the baby in the manger. Or the child worshipped by the wise men. Or even the boy in the temple. He's all grown up now. Today, Jesus strides across time. One foot is planted firmly in the beginning. One foot dominates the end of all things. And he oversees everything in between. You see, in this morning's text, Isaiah says that the king of Israel and his redeemer likes to reveal himself by telling the end of a thing from the beginning. Notice verse 7. Who can proclaim as I do the things that are coming and shall come? You see, the God who is the first and the last proves he is by predicting future events. Divine prophecy is evidence of God's supremacy and sovereignty over all things. Recently, Bing, the internet search engine, released its predictions for 2015. You see, Bing can track trends and from them make calculations about the future. For example, the new fashion style for 2015 is going to be the turtleneck. Well, I hope not. You're not going to see me choking in one of those things. According to Bing, though, Americans will eat more hummus in Middle Eastern food. Small town travel will eclipse vacations to big cities. Wearable technology will become popular. Beyonce will take home a Grammy. New England will win the Super Bowl. The Apple Watch will become a hit. 
And Alabama will beat Florida State for the national title, which we know won't happen since both teams lost on New Year's Day. That's a bing, that's a bust. Obviously, being internet predictions are far from perfect, as are all predictions except for those made by God. Realize, in saying that God is the first and the last, the Bible places God outside of time. First and last are not points on the timeline. First is before the beginning. Last is after the end. When we state that God is eternal, it's not that we're saying that God has lots of time on His hands as much as He dwells outside of time altogether. Einstein proved that time is a physical property relative to other physical properties like space and matter and energy. And thus, just as God is greater than matter or energy, He is also superior to time. He dwells outside of our time domain. This is how He is simultaneously the first and the last. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus uses the same sense when He speaks of Himself as the God who is and who was and who is to come all at the very same time. Isaiah 57, verse 15 speaks of God's eternal nature. Thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. He occupies a dimension unlimited by time and space. And you see, it's from this perch outside of time that God sees the end of things from their beginning. Thus he delights in predicting the future. He proves this eternal nature by predicting the future. In fact, the very next chapter here in Isaiah 45, it lays out one of the boldest predictions in all of the Bible. God, through Isaiah, mentions by name a future ruler who will conquer Babylon and permit the Jews to return to their promised land. God foretells the rise of the Persian king Cyrus the Great. It was an amazingly detailed and specific prophecy. But what's most important is what it teaches us about God. He was there in your past. He is here in your present. And He will be there in your future, whatever it holds. That's why you should call upon His name. For Jesus is the first and the last. And I think this is a great passage to contemplate at the beginning of a brand new year. Is Jesus your first and your last? And if He is, how then should we live? See, here's a way to know for sure that you're walking in the will of God. Are my actions modeling His story? And are my ambitions about bringing Him glory? Once there was a farmer, he was out in the fields, when he saw some clouds sort of forming overhead. They seemed to be creating letters in the sky. And there it was, clearly before him. There was a P and there was a C. The farmer took it as a sign from God. He should preach Christ. That's what he should do. And so the next day he sold his farm. He went off to enroll in the seminary. After three years he graduated, got his first pastorate. He was preaching his inaugural sermon, but it was awful. I mean, it was horrible. So boring. 
Afterwards, one of the church elders, familiar with the pastor's testimony, he approached him and he asked him, he said, Pastor, when you saw that P and C in the sky, are you sure God wasn't saying plant corn? As a pastor, the question I get asked more than any other is, how do you discover God's will for your life? And there is a passage that I always like to reference. Colossians chapter 3, verse 15, it states this, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. The Greek word translated rule can actually be rendered umpire. Paul is saying, let the peace of God umpire your heart. Let the peace of God decide what's in and out of God's strike zone. If you have a peace about a decision, go for it. If your conscience or spirit raises a red flag, hey, back off. And I like to think, I, I, I guess, I, I like to consider Colossians 3, verse 15, as a guidepost. I like that thinking to a point. For the problem is discerning God's peace. Avoiding self-deception. I can't tell you how many dating couples have told me that they prayed about sleeping together until God finally gave them a peace to do so. Or men who told me, oh, they felt a peace about fudging on that expense report. How foolish. God will never give you a peace to do what His Word has forbidden you to do in the first place. Far too often we talk ourselves into sin. We think we can justify doing what pleases us. Hey, resist God's will long enough. Rationalize what you desire long enough. Harden your heart long enough and God will turn you over to a bad decision. Bill Clem was a professional baseball umpire from 1901 to 1941. He was, quote, the father of umpires. And over the course of his colorful career, Bill umpired in 18 World Series. He was the first umpire to employ hand signals in calling balls and strikes. Bill was known as the old arbitrator. Once after a pitch was thrown, Bill waited a little longer than usual to make his call. The younger batter, he turned and he snorted at Bill. Well, what was it, a ball or a strike? Bill answered, Sonny, it ain't nothing till I call it. And that's how I feel about the will of God. I want to hear God call it. I want to know that it's in, or I want to know that it's out. And this is the kind of assurance that comes when we make Jesus our first and our last. If He's your first consideration, if He's your end objective, you'll know His will. When you are guided by His story, when you're living for His glory, you can be sure you're walking in the will of God. Remember, Jesus is the first in time, in order, in rank, really in every way. But perhaps most importantly, He is first in example. He modeled how God wants us to do life. Jesus was dependent on God. He was also focused on others. Jesus was humble. Rather than intimidate people, He felt for their hurts. He showed He cared. He spoke the truth. Jesus extended grace. 
He was lavish with his forgiveness. He gave out second chances. He was kind. And here is the will of God for us. Do the same. He's the first, and we're to follow. You could say that Jesus was the first fully functioning human being who ever lived on planet Earth. His focus was unclouded by sin, and he established a pattern for us. See, here's how you know you're walking in the will of God. Are you doing it the way that Jesus would have done it? Are you loving in an unselfish, sacrificial way? Are you seeking to serve rather than be served? Are you putting your interests or someone else's interests ahead of your own? Do you live for eternity rather than just the here and now? Do you care about character and purity, yours and the other person's? Are you patient about it and humble about it and kind about it and truthful about it? See, I'm not worried about what it is as much as I am how you're going about it. Because if you're doing it the Jesus way, then the what tends to take care of itself. You see, is Jesus first? Are you modeling his story? And is Jesus the last? In the end, do you really want to bring him glory? In your heart of hearts, if it's about making Jesus famous, then it's probably pleasing to God. You know, I read recently where over the last 10 years, a shift has occurred in the television that's marketed to pre-teenagers. In 1997, the number one value promoted on television to pre-teens was community feeling, being part of a group. Today, that community feeling now ranks 11th on the list of priorities. The number two value in 1997 was benevolence or kindness. That now ranks 13th. No, in 2014, the number one value promoted to preteens on television was fame. Kids today want to be famous. When asked whether they would prefer being the president of Harvard University or the personal assistant to their favorite celebrity, they chose assistant to Justin Bieber. I mean, their top desire is fame, and they don't even know why. And yet, this isn't hard for us to figure out. Not if we've read our Bible. Just examine the human heart. Self-glory is everyone's driving ambition. To look better than we are. To come across more spiritual than we are. More noble, more this or that than we are. The desire to be liked and popular never subsides. It's a temptation to us all. It's born out of pride. Wouldn't it be great if we started this new year with one simple goal? To make Jesus our first and our last. To do everything with His story and His glory in mind. I love what A.W. Tozer once said. He said, man in the plan of God has been granted considerable say, but never is he permitted to utter the first word nor the last. That is the prerogative of the deity and one which he will never surrender to his creatures. God's will isn't repressive. It's not domineering. It's really quite liberating. It certainly spares us great pain and heartache. God blesses us, and he sets us free to color between the lines, to express our heart and our giftedness. He just wants to be the first word and the last word 
He just wants us to model His story and live for His glory. And what if we could make that our filter in 2015? In everything we did, before we did it, we asked, how can I do this like Jesus and how can I do it for His glory? Is Jesus your first and your last? Is He the first and last of your day? I read a study where 1,000 adults ages 25 to 54 were asked what they think about when they take their shower. Or in essence, when they wake up or before they go to bed. What are their first thoughts and what are their last thoughts? Well, here the sho- here's the shower survey results. Number one, to-do lists. Number two, problems and worries. Number three, daydreams. Number four, work. You know, David the psalmist, he once took the same survey. His response is in Psalm 63. You are my God, early will I seek you. I remember you on my bed. I meditate on you in the night watches. David sought the Lord early and late, first and last. What if we did the same? Is he the first and last of your finances? In the Old Testament, the tithe was known as the first fruits. In an agrarian society, the first of the harvest belonged to God, as did the last. For after the harvest, the poor were allowed to enter the field and glean from the leftovers. And this should be our attitude. Does God get the first token, the initial 10% of what we bring in? And is he in consideration for any surplus we're blessed to retain? He should be the first and the last. Is he the first and last of our years? Perhaps you were raised in a Christian family. You've never known a time when God wasn't in your thoughts. You came to faith at an early age. What a blessing you've received. The Lord Jesus was the first in your life. Now, though, make him your last. Continue in your faith. Die with your boots on. Serve the Lord to the last. Give him all you've got to the very end. Make Jesus your first and your last. Is he the first and last of your week? You know, we think of Sunday as the end of our week, but it's not. Sunday is the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. We start our week with the worship of God and the fellowship of the saints and the study of His Word and a recommitment of our faith and even a hope for the future. I'm glad you're here today to make Jesus first in your week, but also make Him last. Each week, recount your blessings when the week is done. Confess your sins. Seek healing for your hurts. Give Jesus the last of your week as well. And is he the first and the last of your business? Is his story your first consideration at work? To be a servant, to assist the people around you, to show his love? And is his glory your ultimate aim? To give back to him the credit for whatever successes your efforts bring? Hey, is he the first and the last in your marriage and in your family? You and your wife once saw your marriage as God's will, as a blessing. Why has it become such a burden? Jesus was there in the first. He'll sustain you in the last. The same Lord who helped you raise your babies will give you wisdom to parent your teens. And I hate to tell some of you younger parents, 
But I've done more serious parenting since my kids left high school than I did at any time beforehand. The role of a parent gets more demanding, not less. A parent needs Jesus to be both their first and their last. And is Jesus the first and the last of your affections? I read this this week. There's a graveyard in Cairo, Egypt. It sits at the end of a garbage-filled alleyway. And it has a surprise tombstone. It marks the grave of William Borden, heir to the famous Borden Dairy family. A millionaire at 21, young William gave all his wealth away to missions and set out to China to reach Muslims with the gospel. On the way, he stopped in Cairo to learn Arabic. And there he contracted spinal meningitis. He died suddenly at the age of 25. The inscription on Borden's grave reads, Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. What a statement to earn for your tombstone. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Here's a young man whose heart was on fire for Jesus in that love never, ever faded. In contrast, though, to William Borden, in Revelation 2, verse 4, the church at Ephesus, it receives the tragic review. Jesus says to this church, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Their love for Jesus had chilled. It had grown cold. Don't you want your last love for Him to be as passionate as your first? This morning, why don't we all fan the flame? Let's make Jesus the first and last of our heart's affections. And then finally, is Jesus the first and last of your salvation? If He's not, you have a flimsy salvation. Is He not first? I mean, if your hope is based on anything other than His work on the cross, His righteousness, your faith is misplaced. If you think you're saved because of some good work, or that you've been a good person, or that you've gone to church most of your life, or that you've mumbled a prayer you didn't understand, or you've jumped through somebody's religious hoops, you're wrong. None of that will get you to heaven. Jesus is first in salvation. He alone can save and Jesus is last in salvation as well, for He keeps what He saved. He saves us from the guttermost to the uttermost. He can keep us. He can take a childhood commitment and honor it for a lifetime. He hears a single cry of faith and overlooks a lifetime of failure in order to save the source of that cry. Say it's been a while for you. You've lived through some ups and downs, but you haven't let go. You're still holding on to Jesus. Well, I'm here to tell you that Jesus is enough. He is sufficient. You need nothing else but Him. Don't think that you have to now add to what Jesus has done for you or who Jesus is. You don't. Jesus offers a complete salvation all by Himself. He is the first and the last of our salvation. What you need to do this morning is just to grip onto Jesus a little tighter. You need to squeeze down with a little more faith. Well, let me close this morning by reading again the rhetorical question posed in Isaiah 44 verse 8. 
Jesus asks this question in order to answer it. He speaks. Is there a God besides me? He knows the answer. He wants us to know it too. And then he replies, Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Jesus is the mighty rock. Storms and weather and time have done nothing to erode his strength or weaken his promises. Lean on Jesus and he will never let you down. On this first Sunday of 2015, let's make Jesus our first and our last. Model his story. Live for his glory. Think of him first. Consider him last. And you will walk in his wonderful will.